see, our problem as a society, though, is once you give us a hammer, they ne- we never want to put it back in the tool chest. We just want to keep swinging that hammer. So it's like, well, we have amazing surveillance. Now be ashamed to just put that back. So, so I think the argument we're making is that we can do this without that hammer. We can actually have more of a scalpel where we can protect the civil liberties because if you really put a lens as to how they're doing this, there's a way to do this in a decentralized manner where we can protect the citizens and not reveal any more private information than, say, conventional contact tracing methods. Did you know global threats against business endpoints surged 13% last year? You need to protect yourself, and Malwarebytes can help. It's modern cybersecurity that eliminates online threats, which traditional security software often misses. Get with the times. Get Malwarebytes for business. Learn more at Malwarebytes.com. That's Malwarebytes.com. So I just want to let everyone know this is a two-part episode. You can hear part one today. And then you can tune back in on Friday to hear part two. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. It is Thursday, April 30th, and we're coming to you from all over the world, mostly the East Coast, though. I'm Ben Popper, director of content, talking to you from a cabin way upstate New York. My co-host, Paul Ford, is here with me. Say hey, Paul. Hey. And we have a special guest with us today, Sham Kakaday, who is a professor of computer science and data statistics from the University of Washington. So the reason we have Professor Kakaday with us today, which is really exciting, is that he, along with a number of volunteers at Microsoft and the University of Washington, as well as other places, have released a contact tracing app. It's one of the first big efforts in the field that we saw. And we've been talking on the podcast for a number of weeks about how this might work. Uh, and now we get to hear about that from Professor Kakaday from kind of a data science statistics and computer science perspective. So Professor Kakaday, thanks for coming on and uh, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us what you're doing and what this app is so we can we can get our bearings. Yeah, well, uh, maybe I'll start with just contact tracing more generally because that's really the goal here. And uh, what's contract tracing good for? And in particular, the question is like, how do we suppress the epidemic? So mm-hmm. one of the major problems is that how do we stop the spread? Because if we don't stop it, you get exponential growth. Okay? And part of the difficulty there is you have these asymptomatic spreaders who are spreading before they know they're infected. Okay? So how do we catch those people so they can not go around and infect people when they don't even know it? And with contact tracing, what happens is you're going to miss the first person because like, maybe I'm sick, then I go get tested, I'm positive, but I've already spread it to maybe like four people. Okay, But If you're fast enough with tracing and accurate, you can find who I've been in contact with, and then the tracer would quickly try to get to those other connections and let them know they could be at risk so they don't go around and infect other people. They'll get them tested, or they'll ask them to self-quarantine or self-isolate, and you kind of cut it off. And you don't need to catch everyone, but if you catch a sufficient fraction, you will really prevent this exponential growth. So, Sham... I was listening to the the radio the other day and they were saying contact tracing is not a new thing, that this is something we've been doing with diseases and pandemics for a long time in the United States since World War II, you know, as sort of like a branch of public health. And, you know, obviously 
most of the time it's been focused on what we would call today like STDs. You know, uh, the AIDS epidemic had a big element of contact tracing. Yeah. In. Are you drawing on that science and history as you're thinking about this kind of stuff? Exactly. Like basically that was exactly the analogy I was going to say, like contact tracing is really a conventional epidemiological strategy of how you suppress a disease outbreak. And the AIDS epidemic is one. Ebola in Africa, uh, we've spoken to people about how they suppressed it there. And the SARS outbreak, the MERS outbreak. What's interesting about this time is that this is the first time we've ever seen a contact tracing at this population level scale be effective. So this was in countries like South Korea, China, Taiwan, and Singapore. They've really done this essentially at the scale of their entire population and suppressed it. And it's really impressive. So the goal is how can we actually get tracing at a scale we really never seen before? Sean, can you tell us how it works a little bit now or sort of how it, I'm seeing a lot about sort of mobile devices and sort of the Google Apple platform, but like it, how did South Korea do it? Yeah, so so great. Let's, uh, this is kind of our line of thinking. Let's just go through, see what works for other people and then try to figure out, you know, what we can do here. And South Korea is a particularly interesting case because they're a democratic nation. Okay, and if we go back to Ben's question about, you know, this is a conventional approach, well, South Korea, like, it's interesting that those four countries have actually had to deal with outbreaks recently for another disease, which was SARS or MERS. Okay, and and they learned from their lessons there and set up systems to tackle this. So what South Korea did after MERS is they actually passed emergency laws that gave the government the right to get telecom data in times of a public health emergency. So they definitely lost personal freedoms. And what South Korea is doing now is actually pretty interesting. They aren't directly doing automated tracing. So what they're doing is really, you can think of this as basically a team of detectives where if someone is sick, these people are going to look at the telecom data, they look at the GPS records, they look at the credit card purchases made and CCT cameras, and they're going to try to piece together who was nearby with all this information, and send them messages. So Mm. it's very much like a digitally assisted tracking, because a lot of the time, like, I'll forget where I was if you asked me, like, where was I last Thursday? And when I'm walking on the street, there might be, like, connections. So what they've really done is use this digital assistance, and they, they did a couple other things, right? So they did the digital assisted part of the tracing. On top of that, they had a ridiculous number of tests. So once they had these people at risk, they could very easily go and get a test with very little cost to them in terms of like time because they were basically testing like 30 people for every positive that came up. And what was interesting there is, you know, like in the U.S., certainly people would revolt. Like this would never happen. But somehow people really trust their government. And because of that, it's left them to pull this off. And what was spectacular about their particular situation is they never had to do any lockdown. Like their economy just ran pretty much normally. Getting back to what you were saying, you know, if you listen to stories about people in the United States, you know, who have been under surveillance or even a retrospective of a crime, you know, where they're trying to figure out what happened, you know, law enforcement officials in the U.S. can, as you said, like query 
telecom data and then figure out people's movements and connect them to other people. Who did you call? Who was in the same area? And so you're saying South Korea passed a law that sort of enabled them to do that in real time in the event of a pandemic, which is pretty interesting. But how do you get that to be accurate? You have to do what you said with the detective work where you match it up with other things because a cell phone tower is accurate you know, to a few hundred meters or something like that, but not really that accurate. Yeah, GPS location is not super accurate. That's what I'm saying. They're really doing detective work. They've got the GPS location. They've got the credit card information, CCTV. So so it looks like you went to the grocery store. So we know you were there. Who else went to the grocery (laughs) store around that time? Yeah, it's like you went to this block this time. They're like, oh, I went and visited my friend. And and they might have forgot that. So it's not it's not a certainty. It's all about sort of potentialities and ranges. Yeah, sort of drilling down. Okay, and and they don't uh, they do it more than just that. They they get this information, then then they interview the person to follow up because it isn't something where they look at it and then they inform other people without ever talking to the person. They really make that human connection, and then they go out and inform people. Now, they do something that would also not fly here. They do more of a public broadcast, too. So they call some people, but they also give a trace. They don't give the name, but they say person X was in Manhattan. They went to Soho, this bar at this time. Then they went to somewhere somewhere else. And they give like a two-week-long trace of this person publicly posted. And whoever went to that region, they can check themselves and try to decide what to do. And because they have a lot of tests, this is kind of critical. You really want to have like a certain kind of threshold level to make sure you catch all the positives because what you don't want to happen is let the positives get away. So you kind of have to test enough people where a lot of negatives show up. So you really grab that critical number of positives. So you suppress it. And you don't think that that would fly in the U.S.? I mean, when I was reading through the spec of the Android iOS, one of the things they were proposing, and Paul walked us through this, was that they would have this hash and it would keep it private. But if you know you were tested positive and then you opted in to say yes, it would then spread that alert to a number of other phones that you know could see your hash had touched their hash. And so there was some sense that you would be sort of giving people who had been in your area, you know, an automated warning. Yeah. Okay. Good, uh, Ben. So now let's jump to the U.S. and figure out like what can we get away with here? Wait, wait. Actually, before we do that, I want to do that. But I, I want to do a thought experiment really quickly, right? Because we know, like, it, clearly South Korea has a balance of civil liberties and public health. And culturally, they have accepted this. And they've said, like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Do the thought experiment for me where there's only public health and personal liberties don't matter at all. Like, if you had absolutely no concern as to anyone's privacy, what could you do? Zero privacy, total absolute state society what tools would you use to monitor people and, and how would you do it? Yeah, and, and, uh, and let's be clear about this, right? There is a point in time which is like, look, would we rather have like 400,000 deaths or lose civil liberties? So that's a pretty hard call not to err on the side of saving a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. So, so this is definitely the right thought experiment to ask yeah. ourselves. Or like, you know, you know, a certain number of deaths or a certain, you know, number of years of recession or depression versus the lies. I mean, that's the calculus, you know, we're all having to make and governors and presidents and prime ministers are all making. That's right. And that's right. And, and part of this is also this trade-off that what we do now, it does affect the future because it isn't that likely that governments kind of go back to what they were before. Mm-hmm. And South Korea might because, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel... There's a lot of trust there. They just had the election. You know, everything went super well. The, the turnout was good. There's a lot of support. But 
you know, part of my paranoid wearing hat. I don't think governments just revert back to nice states that they were before. Oh, we, we saw it after September 11th with the Patriot Act, right? Like it just like, yeah. oh, it just kept going and going. It was like, really? That civil liberty? That one too? Yeah. You yeah. Know. So what yeah. Would, would we like strap temperature sensors to every human and then a GPS monitor on them? Like how? So I I just straight up do the, the South Korea model is where I would start with because if we had the resources to test and the digitally assisted tracing, that might be good enough. And then I would also give the Bluetooth a shot too, because that might ease a lot of the burden. I see. Mm-hmm. So double it up, build a, build a digital platform underneath it and then supplement it with sort of human tracing efforts. Yeah. And I, look, at the end of the day, this is one of the cases that I think what we're trying to, to do here is make the case that you can actually protect the people and suppress the pandemic and maintain personal liberties. Mm-hmm. So. Right. If we didn't care about that, yeah, then we would do something very similar to what South Korea is doing. Uh, we could grab the telecom data, the CCTV. Well, we don't have CCTVs, but if we set that up and credit card information, location traces and all of that, and then that's what we would do. But certainly I would never consider doing that if there was an alternative. I was just going to say, Sham, I don't know if you know the details. I mean, I've certainly read a number of articles on it, but can you walk us a little bit through how they did it in China, where they also were able to do pretty effective suppression and containment of the pandemic, but maybe went a little further than South Korea in terms of how active they were and how little choice citizens had to participate? I think it was very much the same in that China had to go through lockdowns because it got out of hand before they started the tracing. So Mm -hmm. they waited a little longer before they started But once they started, they really dropped the hammer with lockdowns. And when they were in lockdown, people had like times they could go to the grocery store. So during lockdown, they had a massive amount of suppression just because people were really ordered to stay at home. When they came out, they had to wear masks. They had times to go to the grocery store. I think there were like drones that came in, told people to go back home. And they actually won quite a bit when, when people were sick. They took citizens in their families that were infected and move those people to hotels with other infected people so they wouldn't infect the family. And I must say that China protected their people. And that's a pretty impressive thing to do because when they stopped it, you know, there was like a lot of family spread where one person would get it, they would go infect the family and they had lots of shelters. So those people didn't have to stay with their families and infect all of them. And that's when they really turned the tide no, I remember reading about that. And yeah, I think that's one of those points where, you know, you, you contrast an authoritarian government with a very tight society, I think is one of the sociological terms they use, whereas the U.S. is a very loose society and a very democratic society. You know, obviously, from a pandemic perspective, from the perspective of how much can we actually protect people's lives and stop the spread, it works. But I remember reading a story about that. I think no U.S. family would accept someone coming in and like taking their 12 year old and moving them to a quarantine hospital. Right. Like it's that tricky, would just not right, fly though, but here. We, we don't have as many multi-generational families living together in one home. Right. So the, right. the risk is is different here at a community level. I would think that in the U.S., if it's voluntary, If someone knows they're going to be infected because they've been exposed, they would not want to infect their family. And if they had the option for support in a safe location, I think a lot of people would take that. Yeah, it's the safe location. We don't have that sort of infrastructural trust right now as a society, too, right? Like China's, you know, 
the word authoritarian comes out and it's it's real in a lot of ways, especially around surveillance. But at the same time, like it seems like Chinese people trust the government to set up a safe dormitory where they will all go to hopefully become healthier. Right. Like and it just the U.S. doesn't have that kind of trust. Yeah. Although I will say we are exploring some options in some big cities where they're saying now, for example, if somebody gets sick and they're homeless, you can't send them to a homeless shelter where they'd be congested. We're going to give them a hotel room or for a healthcare worker who doesn't want to go home and be with their family, give them a hotel room. So they are exploring those options. But yeah, we haven't really put it together. We don't really have the funding because we have this you know, tricky thing called Congress. Hmm. Yeah. So I derailed hugely on sort of worst case privacy scenarios. And now, I, I mean, we should really talk about what you're doing and what you're building. Yeah. And I think the question we asked ourselves, too, is like, look, can open democracies fight pandemics? Because one viewpoint, and this is, you know, my viewpoint, this is very, very relevant for the future, because are we going to live in a society where open democracies can't protect their citizens? And it's Mm -hmm. countries like China that can. And I would rather live in a place where our citizens can be protected. And I think at the end of the day, one way we can look at in retrospect is, hey, this is one time where we had a shared trauma, but we learned how to protect our citizens in much the way those countries uh, learned from SARS and MERS. Because I could have seen another line of history where we had a controllable outbreak, like maybe MERS broke out here, and we set up that infrastructure to be able to act quickly. This time we were able to be caught off guard and through various factors about the way the government works right now, it spread. You see, our problem as a society, though, is once you give us a hammer, they ne- we never want to put it back in the tool chest. We just want to keep swinging that hammer. So it's like, oh, we have amazing surveillance. Now be ashamed to just put that back. So, so I think the argument we're making is that we can do this without that hammer. We can actually have more of a scalpel where we can protect the civil liberties, because if you really put a lens as to how they're doing this, there's a way to do this in a decentralized manner where we can protect the citizens and not reveal any more private information than, say, conventional contact tracing methods. Okay, so walk us through, yeah, walk us through the technological underpinnings of what you built, and I guess if it does interact with those, you know, sort of frameworks that iOS and Android set up, talk us through a little bit of how that works. Don't worry about being too abstract, because everyone can literally go on Stack Overflow and just look concepts up. It's okay, it's, cool, it's something cool. we yeah, can take for uh, granted with this audience. Uh, <laughs> awesome, awesome. That is going to make it fun. Okay, so what happened with the Bluetooth iOS, so there's two parts of this. Let's start with the automated side. So I think a bunch of people just rediscovered something very similar, because So we actually figured out uh, we were going to get the Bluetooth going. We basically had that in place at the same time. Google and Apple uh, released their their system. And there's a similar Mm -hmm. system that some people in Europe are working on. So I was actually doing some volunteer work on this, working with people at Microsoft and talking to them. And then I called up some of my friends at UW. So I'm over there and they're cryptographers and security people. So we figured out a protocol, figured out how to make it secure. And we basically made it as well. Okay, so let's go through the Bluetooth one first, because what we are doing, I think, is a little broader than just Bluetooth, because as we were talking about before, so, so Ben's question, which is, like, what did other countries do? Well, they had a big manual effort as well. So what we're doing is both the automated Bluetooth side, so mm-hmm. we're doing uh, an automated side, and that's pretty novel because even these other countries aren't doing that. But we're also going to find a way to help the manual tracers, much in the way that South Korea and China are doing it, but keeping privacy intact. Okay, so let's do Bluetooth. 
Okay, so suppose me and Ben are sitting on a bus together. I've never met Ben. This is a connection that suppose I find out I'm sick a couple of days later. How do we inform Ben that he's been exposed? Okay, and the tracing, the conventional uh, tracing strategies, it's going to be pretty hard to figure out that I was sitting right next to Ben, unless there's like a monitor right on the bus. Mm-hmm. Okay, and even in those other countries, that'll be missed. But maybe there's a way to get Ben an alert. Okay, so, so here's what we're going to do. So Bluetooth is pretty low powered. Okay, and you can think about the, the pings of Bluetooth. It, it only goes about, say, six feet or so, six to eight feet. Okay, so my mm-hmm. phone, uh, so let's just have phones broadcast numbers. So my phone is going to broadcast a random number. Okay, so suppose when I'm on the bus, my phone's broadcasting 158. Okay, and then Ben's going to broadcast another random number, say 72. Okay, so uh, everyone's going to record which numbers they broadcast, and everyone's going to record which numbers they hear. So I broadcast 158. I also hear another phone broadcasting 72. So I record that. Ben records 158 when I'm broadcasting. And then I know that I must have been near a phone that's broadcast 72. And then I go get tested a couple of days later, and I find out I'm positive. The idea is that at the lab, when I find out I'm positive, I would have the option for the lab to confirm I'm positive and take my random numbers that I broadcast, put them in a big public file, and kind of post this public file. Okay, so now what's out there is there's like this file from, say, Lab X of these are the random numbers broadcasted by positive people. Okay, and then every hour or so, everyone's phone who wants to, they can just go and read this big file. And Ben's phone can read this file and see, wait a minute, it sees 158 recorded on this file. Then at that point, Ben's phone knows that it heard 158, so Ben had to be in close proximity to someone who's infected. Okay, and then the phone could give Ben an alert based on the amount of time that Ben's phone has been in proximity to me. Like if it's, say, past 15 minutes, it could say, hey, you might want to go get tested or you might want to self-isolate until uh, you figure out if you have symptoms or whatever messages make sense from a public health perspective. So, I mean, that, and that works pretty well if you have a zillion tests available, right? Like, it, it's got, it feels like this really requires testing. Yeah, and, and remember that for even the conventional contact tracing strategy, one needs a fair bit of testing. So if we go back to South Korea, they're testing 30 people for every one positive that comes up. Hmm. So there's definitely a threshold strategy, because the way I think about it is, you know, it's something like, you want to test someone if they have, say, a greater than 3% chance of being infected. And at the end of the day, given how the reproduction number of this thing works, unless we err on that side, too many people will get away and will get the exponential growth. Okay, so we really need to make sure we're grabbing those positives. And this thing might have a higher false rate, so maybe we need to test a bit more but if it's the case that, hey, I get some alert on, a, on my way to work, I can just pop by CVS and get a test for free, then this is really what's going to be needed. But if we're showing up a test, like one positive out of every four tests, there's no way even the conventional strategy is going to work. Sham, do you know like how many tests per million they did in South Korea or sort of roughly where it would land compared to other places? So, th- so this is exactly the... So me, broaden this question because I've actually been doing a fair number of estimates and working on a doc now to send to the government for 
kind of estimates of testers and tracers we need. And there was a docker circulated in Washington giving estimates as well. And one of the things we're trying to stress here is how to think about how many estimates we need because because your question is like, look, how many tests did South Korea do? And I'm going to rephrase the question because when we first started seeing these estimates, we were seeing like number of tests per week or number of tests per day. And this can't possibly be the right way to measure the number of tests because it's mm. going to depend both on the population size and the number of people that are infected. Okay, And in some places, if they've really done a good job by quarantining, we shouldn't need that many tests. Whereas New York City, that should be a very different number given the prevalence of outbreak. So the right way to think about this is for every new case out there, I think a pretty reasonable estimate is you want to test 30 times more people. So then the estimation strategy goes to figure out how many new cases there are per day, Mm -hmm. multiplied by that 30, Okay, but that isn't going to cut in the U.S. because how do we know how many new cases we have unless we're testing? So you got this chicken-egg problem. But then what you can do is you can how many new deaths per day there are. And we have a pretty good idea of the infection fatality rate, so the IFR, and we can do that math. And the right multiplier, I would say, is, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Just look at the Wikipedia page of deaths. And you want to figure yourself out for how many tests per day you need. And I would say the right number is take the number of deaths per day, multiply that by 2,000. That gives you the right number of tests per day you want to be doing. Right. So this is something like we were talking about with ICU beds or ventilators. Like if we look at the slope of intake to hospital or deaths or something like that, then we get a sense of what kind of tools we need for the size of the outbreak and the velocity of the outbreak we have. Yeah. And I mean, the ICU beds are kind of straightforward because that one, the people are coming who need them. So there's something very direct. It's, I mean, the issue there is just the slope of it. But here, once you pass the hump, that's a pretty conservative estimate because the deaths per day are going Mm -hmm. down. So that estimate is kind of what you needed three weeks ago, because that's probably when those infections were occurring. Okay. And what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, if you run these numbers in New York, you're looking at about, you know, two to four million tests a week, which is like, right. uh, you know, a, a good factor 10 to 40 more than what they're suggesting and what we have. Okay, but that's uh, the most extreme case in the U.S. Uh, all right, everybody, this is the time of the week when we usually do our lifeboats. But there have been no new lifeboats, so all my Stack Overflow listeners, please get out there and rescue some questions. I know we just crossed 1,000. That was a big milestone. We were excited, but now is not the time to slack off. We must spread and save the knowledge. And so yeah, no lifeboats this week. We'll get back to you next week, hopefully with some more. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me at Ben Popper on Twitter. I'm Sean Kakade. I'm a professor at, of computer science and statistics at the University of Washington. It was a pleasure to be here. You can find me at uh, the University of Washington. So just search Sean Kakade, K-A-K-A-D-E. The app is, I think if you just search for COVID Safe, you will find it. There's, there's a one uh, in Australia called COVID Safe. There's not that one, but there's a beta version out there right now that isn't available from the app store, but we're just testing things out. And you can just search for COVID Safe, and that should bring that up. But in a week or two's time, you should hope to hearing about it with lots of buzz.
This is actually now I know how we can help you. All of the programmers who listen to this will download it and then point out all the bugs. They're very that's, good yeah, at that. We uh, do it on Stack Overflow all the time. That's that's uh, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> well, this is great. This is a fantastic effort, and it sounds like a ton of volunteers. So thank you to everyone who is is jumping in to do this. My name is Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of a product studio called Postlight in New York City. If you want to get in touch, I'm at ftrain on Twitter. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. Just a reminder, that was part one of this episode. It's to be continued, so tune in on Friday for the rest of the conversation. Thanks. <laughs>